morning. So without further ado, please jump back to Genesis chapter 37 today. Um, this is a part one of, of, uh, in a series on Joseph. And so we will not be covering Genesis 39. Uh, contrary to what the slide says, um, that was me setting us up for uh, next week. And so uh, rest assured, Genesis 37 will be our text today. So essentially we have one main point and three subpoints. Um, and I promise it will flow uh, quickly as we look at the text this morning in Genesis chapter 37. Because our time is short from the extent of all the add-ons to the service today, um, I want you to ask the Lord, as I do here, to help us to hear the word well, to receive it in our hearts, to allow the engrafted word to change us to be more like Jesus so that we can choose to be doers of the word today. So let's ask the Lord in blessing and prayer for that wonderful opportunity before we launch into the text today, shall we? Father, in Jesus' name, we come before you humbly asking and pleading that your Holy Spirit will enlighten us as we know he will, that he will take the word of God and that he would help us to discern our very thoughts and intentions so that we might be transformed, metamorphosized to be more and more like Jesus today. And as our sanctification occurs, as we listen to the word, may we then apply it to our hearts and become doers today. Lord, bless the reading and teaching of your word this morning in our shortened time, and I pray, God, that you would be honored and glorified in everything is done, said, and thought. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. amen. Genesis chapter 37, if you will, and the title of this uh, mini-series as we end Genesis um, is God's providence works all things for our good. God's providence works all things for our good. What we're going to see in the text is that God's sovereignty is behind the scenes and guaranteeing our hope and calling. God's sovereignty is always working behind the scenes and guaranteeing our hope and calling. In fact, our theme for 2024 is one hope, one calling. And as we look at the text of Scripture today, we are going to find in the life and narrative of Joseph no supernatural events, no uh, out of the nature, out of the ordinary interference, as it were, or influence, as it were. We're going to find that God is sovereignly working through the life of Joseph in what appears to be an extremely dark process of his life. We're going to find Joseph as a young man, 17, 18 years old, uh, perhaps at the oldest, 20, being immediately abused in the text, nearly killed, sold as a slave. And we're going to watch that process. And many would ask, where is God in all of this? I mean, isn't Joseph the, the, the firstborn of Rachel, the beloved of Jacob, the chosen seed, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham? Why is he suffering such? And friends, Joseph's life becomes a type of the life to come, Jesus. Joseph becomes abused, and he was stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. And yet what man meant for evil, the story tells us, God meant for good. 
And friends, as we walk through the narrative, as we work through the text of Genesis, as we finish this masterful journey discussing sin's destruction but God's deliverance, we're going to see today in this part one miniseries that God's providence works all things for our good. I need to pose the question this morning, do you believe that? Only you can answer that. Now, I'll tip my hat to you this morning and tell you that it is my goal to convince you to believe that. But the Holy Spirit must take the Word of God and so turn it around in your heart and mind that you learn to trust in the sovereignty of our God who works behind the scenes to guarantee our singular hope in God and our singular calling to be God's ambassadors. And in 2024, that will be our theme. And so, I want to read the text. And yes, I'm going to read all 36 verses. So are you ready? Put your listening ears on. Genesis 37, verse 1. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. And this is the history of Jacob. Joseph being 17 years old, there we go, sorry about that. He was 17, not 20 was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. I want you to mark the word bad report. We're going to come back and talk about it. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all of his children. By the way, Israel is Jacob. These are synonyms. We remember this is the narrator driving us back to Jacob's wrestling with God and his name transfer to prince with God. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There were they were, uh, there were binding sheaves in the field. Uh, then, behold, my sheaf arose and also stood and upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us, or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream. And told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in his mind. Then his brothers went to feed their father's flocks in... Shechem. Remember the halfway point, point of halfway obedience as we discussed last week. Shechem is not a good place, not a place of good things. All Israel said to Joseph, are not, are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to them, here I am. Then he said to him, please go and see it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him, and there he was, wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? So he said, I'm seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They've departed from here. For I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. 
Now, when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands, and he said, uh, Let us not kill him. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but, but cast him into this pit which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, so that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So it came to pass, when Joseph had come to his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and they cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, there was no water in it. They sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted up their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh, on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes, and he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Do you know whether it's your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it. And he said, it's, it's my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. And Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his waist and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and daughters, all, and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, for I shall go down into the grave to my son in the morning. In morning, Thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and a captain of the guard. May the Lord add a blessing to the portion of the reading of his word today. We'll pick up with chapter 39 next time. But I want you to turn back uh, just a few, just one page to chapter 37. Chapter 37. I want to bring you there because as we, as we, excuse me, to chapter 36, as we launch into the narrative of Joseph, we need to understand its context. Remember chapter 36 was the last mention sort of chronologically, a sweeping overview of God's blessing of Jacob, now known as Israel. And then chapter 36, so 35 was that, chapter 36 is Esau's genealogy, Jacob's brother. And so the text before us, by the way, is the longest narrative in Genesis and the final Toledoth section. You remember what I said, the Toledoth, way back at the beginning of instruction last year in January. The Toledoth are natural Hebrew boundaries that make up an outline of this narrative. And so uh, it comprises the, the Toledoth. It was, we saw the first one in chapter 2, verse 4, and 5, 1, 6, 9, 10, 1, 11, 10, and 27, 25, 12, and 19 here in, in 36, 1 and 9, with Esau's genealogy, and now in chapter 37, verse 2, the very last one. And it won't be mentioned again until Genesis 50. So each one of these Toledoths points to a transformation, a change in God's 
overall direction, bringing a deliverer to his people to crush sin. And so this is the very last one. The rest of Genesis will key in on God's gracious provision and protection of the seed through this one of Jacob's sons, Joseph. Before we pick up in the story here in chapter 37, though, where we find Jacob's sons shepherding their flocks in Shechem, it behooves us to summarize the interlude, chapter 36. Now, we remember what I said last time sweepingly, Esau was not the chosen one. Esau, in fact, uh, was a man who lived in the New Testament, as we know, lived for the moment. A man who became a fornicator, as the scripture says, and a profane man. A man who was out of favor with his mom and dad, indeed made them weep for his choices. A man who was willing to sell his birthright for a pot of beans and was robbed even of his double blessing as the firstborn. So the tragedy was that the sum total of Esau's life, although he was an easy, easygoing, good-time Charlie, as it were, who was accustomed to yielding to his appetites, the concept of this delayed gratification had no place in Esau's thinking. He lived for what was before him, be it a hunt or a meal or the company of women. Esau was singularly unreflective. He had no sense of the spirituality, no, or the spiritual, no eye for the unseen, no vision, only earthbound dreams. One commentator asked the question, holy things? He never thought that deeply. And that is why he could so blithely sell his birthright for Jacob's stew with the fastidious rhetoric of starvation. Remember, oh, give it to me or I'm going to starve. He's not going to starve. He's living for the moment. He cared not at all about the covenant, future glorious promise of Canaan and the multitude of descendants. What good were they in the present? Even the firstborn's entitlement to a double portion of the inheritance meant nothing to Esau. So tragically, Esau's descendants would become inveterate enemies of Israel. I want you to hear me well. This is an important setup to the story of Joseph. Don't get lost. Some 500 years after Esau's departure, when Moses was leading Israel's exes from Egypt, the Edomites, Esau's descendants, refused peaceful overtures of Moses and would not allow Israel to pass through their territories. You find that story in Numbers chapter 20. When Saul became king of Israel, so another uh, 400 or so years later, when Saul became king of Israel, he had to fight the Edomites. And you can find, read all about that in 1 Samuel chapter 14. King David eventually subdued them for a time, but the most infamous abuse came during Israel's deportation to Babylonia when the Edomites actually blocked the crossroads, cutting off the route that the fugitive Israelites were attempting to escape from Babylon's armies. And eventually, the Edomites delivered Israel back to Babylon. You can read about that in Obadiah 14. Hence, the fierce invective of Malachi, and in fact, the entire book of Obadiah, is against the Edomites. These were not good people. These were uh, antagonists to God's people. Yes, he was the firstborn of Isaac, the chosen seed, and yet he lived as a profane, fornicative man. He rejected the promise, rejected the blessing, and though he didn't have the favor of God, it says in the New Testament, he sought repentance with tears. And what, what was he actually sorrow, sorry for? He was sorry for the consequences. He wasn't truly repentant. 
Had he been truly repentant, God would have extended the hand of mercy to him. Finally, the tragic poetry of redemptive history is this. It was, listen to this carefully, we just went through the Christmas season. It was an Edomite, Herod the Great, who exterminated the babies of Bethlehem in his attempt to kill the king of kings. We just read that last week in Matthew chapter 2. And so there will be a weeping and wailing in Ramah because God's women are bereft of their children. That was an Edomite. The ultimate sons of Esau and Jacob, Herod the king and Christ the king, testified to the significance of the path that we take up. And though my message today isn't on chapter 35, can I leave you with this as we jump into the story of Joseph? Young Esau could not see beyond what was in front of him. He possessed no vision, no spiritual imagination. He had no eyes or mind for God or for heaven or for hell. Spiritual realities were to him dull and opaque. He was a single-dimensional soul. Pleasures now... That was his guiding star. For him, all that mattered was the excitement of the hunt, a hearty meal, a woman's company, all good things in proper perspective in place, but pleasure is all that Esau could see, and thus he despised his birthright, selling it for a single meal, and likewise he despised his heritage for the pleasures of Canaanite women. Esau's blithe arrogance brutalized everything precious to life and fixed him on his tragic course. For every generation, the challenge is the same. To see there is more to life than a meal, or a video game, or baseball, or a party, or a movie, or an indulgence of some kind. Yes, the command is the same. To see it as Paul put it, the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary. But the things that are unseen, they are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4.18 you see, the challenge for us of this generation, like Joseph's generation, is to seek the things which are above and set our affections upon the things that are where Christ is enthroned and seated, to set our minds on things that are above and not on the things that are on earth, Colossians 3, 1 and 2. The challenge is to forego the lazy brain death that comes so easily to the young who ignore the teaching and preaching of God's word and to listen with all that we have. Do not sell what God has given you through his word or your church or your family for cheap pleasure, young person. My heart's prayer for you as we launch into the rest of this discussion is what Paul prayed for his own children and grandchildren in the Lord in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 and 20. Listen to the inspired text. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having your, the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him as, at his right hand in the heavenly places. Oh, friend, God has given you a hope and a calling this year in 2024. As we look at the life of Joseph, don't fall prey to the trap of Esau. Don't sell your life short for cheap temporary pleasures. 
Don't waste your life, man, woman, middle-aged saint, senior saint, young person. Give God your time, your talent, and your treasure. Heed the warning of the life of Esau. Your choices today affect your family and your future tomorrow. Sin destroys, but God delivers. But he delivers to give us one hope, his son, Jesus Christ. And one calling, ambassadors for Christ's sake, appealing to the souls of men that we might share in that eternal inheritance and the riches of his glorious grace. Oh, friends, please, as we move into the story, I hope this sharpens your understanding of where we're going. Now, as we look at chapter 37, um, and as I told you, we're going to ask this question, how does the narrative highlight for us that God's sovereign providence develops hope and leads to ownership of our calling? How does the narrative highlight for us that God's sovereign providence develops hope and leads to ownership of our calling? Esau rejected the hope of God and the calling of God and rejected his inheritance and thus was not ambassador for God and his glory and his goodness. He was an ambassador for self, self-gratification, instant success and desires. So how is it that Israel, the broken man that he was, facilitated a restoration by trusting in the promise of God through his son Joseph? Well, we're going to see that that only happens because God sovereignly behind the scenes guarantees our hope and our calling. Because God's providence works all things for our good. And so in today's narrative, we'll see that God's sovereign providence works despite human failure. That's our one and only point today. The second one we're going to start next week shows that God's sovereign providence works through human suffering. We're going to see that in Potiphar's household in chapter um, 39. That's a misprint there on the text. So God's sovereign providence works despite human failure. Okay? God's sovereign providence works despite human failure. Let's take a look at that. Um, first of all, we see Joseph's report. Now, remember what I told you. So as we look at the text, remember the biblical account of Joseph is at once a theological narrative and a heroic literature that will instruct and challenge all who seriously engage it. So as we see this sweeping narrative, we're going to find that Joseph's actions sometimes foreshadow those of Christ himself, whose rejection by men played an essential part in effecting our deliverance. Joseph's story also fulfills God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, as God tells him of his descendants 400 years of servitude in Egypt. As God would have it, the microcosm of Joseph's life would be beautifully prophetic of the life of the nation of Israel in macrocosm. And so the rousing beauty of Joseph's story is revealed in the way that we, the reader, are meant to see God's hand of providential working behind the scenes, to orchestrate his will through the everyday mundane of life on this sin-cursed planet. As our theme for 2023 uh, revealed, sin destroys, but God delivers, and that theme is clearly true in the ebb and flow of Joseph's life. But there is more to Joseph's story. Through Joseph, we are meant to see our one hope and one calling. God funneled his promised seed through Jacob so he would deliver Jacob and all his descendants to the unlikely second youngest, Joseph. And he would culminate his work of deliverance by bringing hope to his people and a calling to be. As Peter puts it, but you are a chosen generation, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim to the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Friends, that's who we are. We must, like Joseph, this priestly privilege that God has chosen people to inherit is not to be lightly taken. So we must, like Joseph, endure the trials of our everyday lives and trust in the providence of the God who sees our suffering and willingly directs our steps through the natural courses of our lives for our good and his glory. So Christian, today, let us remember this truth. As believers, we must claim our calling and cling to our hope in our sovereign God's providential plan for our lives. Friend, I don't know what you bring to the table today. Maybe you bring worry or fear of the election year of 2024. How is that going to affect our bank account? How is it going to affect us at the gas pump? How is that going to affect our local economy and our local uh, judiciary judges and our local uh, elected officials. How is it going to affect us nationally? I, I know there's uncertainty when it comes to that, but be rest, rest assured, God providentially works behind the scenes for our good and His glory. And regardless of who's on the throne of the White House, or Congress, or the Senate, or the judiciary in the Supreme Court, God holds their heart in His hand. And we Christians, despite the suffering and circumstances that may indeed come in the United States of America in 2024, or may by God's mercy be avoided for another term, who knows? Regardless of that, our hope and our calling is sure. Now, let me define this, and we're going to move on rapidly through our text today. Remember, the word hope, from its biblical understanding, means this— a confident expectation in the God who always keeps his promises. So when I say hope from the believer's perspective, I want you to remember this. Hope means I have a confident expectation in the God who always keeps his promises. When my circumstances look dire, when my situation is bad, when my sin nature within is deceiving me and my lusts within are distracting me, I can confidently expect my God to always keep his promises. And thus, I can focus my attention on him and not on the horizontal. And Joseph, behind the scenes, as a 17-year-old, is sold into slavery, and we're going to find in the midst of human suffering, we're going to find God always patiently directing him. So our main point this morning, God's sovereign providence works despite human failure. What are the human failures we see in the text? Well, the first one is Joseph's report. Remember what I told you in verses 1 to 4. Joseph's report. As the story begins, God providentially brings about Joseph's rejection. Did you hear what I said? God providentially brings about Joseph's rejection. God does this. By the way, who gives Joseph the dream? God. Who gives Joseph the second dream? God. Now, lest you think that the statement I made earlier is the actually, you know, opposites, right? Backwards. No. God is good, despite our circumstances. But you say, preacher, how could any good come out of this horrible situation? God gave him the dream. But Joseph's report, and, I, and I'm only reason why I'm highlighting this is so often we look at Joseph and we're like, Joseph was awesome. He was perfect. 
The man was sinless. Joseph's not awesome and perfect. He's 17, he's arrogant, and he's proud. And the Hebrew text, um, as it lays out, as it uses this verb, um, it says, um, as he was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wife, Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now, uh, the word bad report here um, actually has the idea um, as the, the word, the, the Hebrew word deva is always used in the rest of Scripture in the negative sense of an untrue report. So this is its usage. It's, it's usage here, but every time it shows up in the Old Testament, every time, without exception, it is used of an untrue report um, that has a negative connotation. And so in here, it qualifies, it's qualified by the adjective ra'ah, which means evil. Thus, Joseph misrepresented and maligned his brothers. Now, if you are a brother and you've had a brother or sister, you know what it means to be tattled on. The idea here is Joseph tattled. Now, there was no doubt some truth to his report, right? But this is like the big fish story, you know? I went up north and I caught a trout. It was really about four inches, pathetic. I didn't even know they stocked trout that small and had to toss it back. But eventually when I made it back to Phoenix, it was a 14-inch monster that weighed five and a half pounds and it was the most delicious thing I've ever eaten, right? This is the idea. He brings an evil report to his dad. He takes the kernel of truth and he embellishes it to elevate himself in dad's eyes and diminish his siblings. And what is their response? They hate him. Now, that shouldn't surprise us, should it? Joseph's report is not necessarily a good one. And so what we find, though, is a second reality here as we look at the text. Remember, God's sovereign providence works despite human failure, and Joseph fails in his reporting. Joseph gives an evil report when there was probably a spin, he could have taken a good report there. And we also see a negative in the text of Jacob's favoritism. Here again, here again, over and over and over again, we see Jacob favoring Joseph. Favoritism, indeed, had become a generational sin in Jacob's family. Remember, Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. And remember that Rebekah loved Jacob more than Esau. And recall that Jacob loved Rachel and her children more than Leah and her offspring, and so on and so forth. Now, Jacob probably could not help his feelings of favoritism because Joseph was a son of Rachel, his deceased and never forgotten first love. And Joseph had been born late in life after so many years of frustration. Along with this, young uh, Joseph's freedom from the sins of his older sons made him a source of solace and joy to his father. Nevertheless, Jacob's blatant favoritism was unconscionable. The lifelong hurt inflicted by his own father's favoritism should have made him wary of even a hint of not being even-handed with his children. Joseph was the first son of Rachel whom Jacob had chosen to marry before being deceived by Laban. And more... Remember Reuben, who shows up in the story. Reuben is the firstborn of Leah. Reuben is the one who should get a double portion. But Reuben, uh, Reuben uh, despises his, his uh, birthright, and he commits incest with his father's concubine, Bilhah. And so this text gives us layers of reasoning why Jacob 
not justifying Jacob's sinful favoritism, but notice the text tells us that he gave Joseph a coat of many colors. Now that is a, that is a uh, what we would call an interpretation of an, a Hebrew euphemism that we're not really certain what it means. Uh, it could be that the coat was like, is depicted in, you know, the modern movies and musicals, uh, a, a multicolored, multi-striped coat, or it could be that it was uh, made of a special silk that was super expensive and took a shimmering color code, or it could be that it was a single garment that was embellished with uh, multiple colored stones and gems. But more than likely in the practice of the day, cultural practice of the day, it was likely a special coat of the official uh, inheritor of a double blessing. So this was Jacob's way of saying, my firstborn son Reuben has despised his birthright and taken my wife as his, so I am going to give the blessing that belonged to him to Joseph, and Joseph is going to get a double blessing, and indeed he does, does he not? He gets a double blessing in chapter 50 from his dad, or chapter 49 from his dad when he blesses Manasseh and Ephraim, his, ch his child his children. And so more than likely, this is a coat that would have been full length to the arms and all the way to the ankles. It would have been clearly marking him as the inheritor of all the family goods and belongings and the double blessing. Now, we can see how uh, Reuben uh, shows himself probably a bit penitent in this passage because he keeps his brothers from actually killing Joseph, although the text maybe shows a little bit of his own, you know, covering his backside, so to speak, so that he can bring him back to his father, so that he looks big. Remember, hey, Dad, you know, I, I made a little error there in taking Bilhah when I shouldn't have, but don't you want to restore me to favoritism? Don't I belong as the firstborn and the one of blessing? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, uh, to stop my brothers from killing um, your, your favorite, and uh, maybe you'll see me in a different light. And no, no doubt he's thinking that. But what we find here in last, last point, and I'm almost done, is God's providence. Verses 5 to 11 showcases God's providence. The hand of God was everywhere in this sweeping narrative as it orchestrated the creation of a preserver of his people. You see, God's hidden hand had its subtle way amidst the, mora uh, the morass of human sin. Young Joseph's bad report set him at odds with his brothers. Jacob's entrenched favoritism of Joseph further incurred his son's resentment and rejection of Joseph. God's visible fingerprints were seen in the substance and choreography of Joseph's two dreams. Their origin and meaning came from God's pleasure, and God's sovereignty sealed and ensured the rejection of young Joseph. Yes, God's sovereignty sealed and ensured his rejection. Yet, We've said, as believers, we must claim our calling and, our, and cling to our hope in our sovereign God's providential plan. And we've said that God works all things for our good. So how is it good that Joseph would endure such trouble? And the answer is slapping us in the face in the story. But as we un unfold the story, can I give a clear reality for us today? We must be like Joseph. Because though Joseph was dealt a raw deal, though Joseph's favoritism by God and his father put him at odds with his brothers, and though his brothers dealt with him harshly, 
And though we'll see in chapter 39, God in his providence allows a harsh treatment in Pharaoh's or in Potiphar's house. And imprisonment is in his future. We find Joseph never losing hope. Never leaving a confident expectation in God who always keeps his promises. Yes, Joseph should be someone we emulate. Because Joseph was a man who clung to his calling with a confident expectation that God will fulfill his promises. Maybe today you look back on your life and you can see God's providential hand of leading and you see the, the mountaintops of joy with the valleys of defeat. Perhaps some of those valleys have stretched on and on in your life. There's hurt and pain and grief and sorrow. Maybe it was from sin that you chose and consequences that you receive and you've acknowledged you rightly deserve. Or maybe it was sin that was committed against you and it feels very unfair. Just know that our sovereign God providentially is always working behind the scenes for our good and for his glory. And like Joseph, we can confidently hope in God that he has an expected end and a beautiful future like the prophet Jeremiah's words for us. Because he has given us his Holy Spirit to tabernacle, to indwell us, so that we might, in, we might expose the fruit of the Spirit to the lost, that we might propel our, our message of hope into the lost community. Yes, God in his providence does allow suffering and trials. He indeed puts Joseph in a circumstance where Joseph would be tried. But God does not tempt. Neither can he be tempted by any man. But temptation comes when we are all drawn away of our own lusts and enticed. And when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. God is always good. And with him there is no variation or shadow of turning his goodness and his good nature will often allow us to providentially suffer. And though we can't see in the valley of despair what God is doing, we must have a confident expectation and hope that God is working all things together for my good and his glory. So we must confidently say with the Apostle Paul, don't grow weary in doing good. For in due season you shall reap if you don't faint. You see, God is always with us. As Jesus said and was repeated three times in the New Testament, I will never leave you or forsake you. So believe you're, if you're in a financial trial or a physical trial, or you are lamenting or being consoled from the loss of a dear loved one, friends, don't ever think that you're alone because God is right there. God, who is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, understands your pain. He understands your suffering. God, who was wrongly accused in the person of Jesus, who was abused, uh, smitten, stricken of God, and afflicted, he understands what it means to stand condemned when he did not deserve it. God, who in the flesh came lived a sinless life, and stood before the cracked whip of a Roman guard, lashing his back, tearing his flesh, bleeding 
and dying for you, though he did not deserve it, though he did not earn it. The King of Kings took on your suffering, died in your place, and like Joseph, had to submit to incredible suffering. And like Joseph, he recognized God meant this for good. So friends, if you stand here like Joseph today, under God's providence, you must recognize, like Joseph today, that God has a special plan for your life. Any of us who follow God will live a life that will sometimes become very tangled. At times, complications will rise from our own sin, as with Joseph, from the sin of those around us and from the sin of those in the wider spheres of our existence. You see, we live in a world caught in a web of sin, and it is constantly casting new webs. But we know that amidst the complexities, the creative power of God is at work to do us good. This is true when we are all ill, when we have trouble with our children or our grandchildren, when professional problems engulf us. Truly, we have a God of providence, a God who sustains our souls in all of life's difficulties, perpetually working His good. This is truth. This is a truth to learn now because life is not going to get easier. In fact, the more you follow God, the more complicated life will become because your life's course will buck the currents of this world. Jesus said, the world hates me, and thus it will hate you, because it hated me first. When you and I live for Christ and give our lives to Christ, we face the offensive onslaught of the enemy. But we have the sword of the word of God, and we have the message of hope, and we have a calling to be ambassadors for God through Christ so that the lost may enter his kingdom. And so, friends, truly we have a God of providence, a God who sustains our souls and all of life, perpetually working good. This is a truth we must learn. Submit yourselves to him in the great process of life. Follow him. Listen to the life of Joseph, a hero for the ages, who has become so much like Christ himself. In a cursed sin world, sin-cursed world, we are surrounded by sinners and even buffeted daily by their harsh habits some directed toward our destruction and personally or professionally. Yet our sovereign God of providence is always at work. He's always watching. He's always directing. He's keeping a record of the wrongs that we've endured and the rights that we do. One day he will reward the righteous and condemn the wicked. Yet today, we must claim our calling to be his ambassadors of hope. We must continually place our confident expectation in the God who always keeps his promises. And when we do, we will claim our calling to share God's love through his precious Son and our Savior. You see, friends, as believers, we must claim our calling and cling to hope in our sovereign God's providential plan for our lives. May God help us to do so today.